0: Hi guys, hi everybody, this is Charlie and this is the uh, Zoom cast for May 9th, um, 2019. It's six o'clock, it's it's a beautiful day in Western Massachusetts. Um, And uh, guess what, it's four days until my birthday. So um, I just have to warn you that because I'm turning 70 in four days, And I don't know what kind of cognitive decline might undergo at that moment. This could be the last coherent Zoom cast. Um, Just want you to know that. So if I get on next time, you'll have an explanation, even if I can't explain it, for why I don't make any sense at all. I'm hoping that won't happen. I have no reason to think it'll necessarily happen. But I'm trying to maintain my own sense of humor about this big number, 70, which Like I think most people who turn 70, they actually feel like they're 40 inside and there's this discrepancy of about 30 years between inside and outside. So I'm coming to terms with that uh, little by little. So anyway, what are we doing today? Um, Last week, I uh, dwelled on the sort of uh, the fundamental difference between a mindful stance in life and you might say an addictive stance in life or a stance of being very dysregulated. Uh, and, uh, as part of which I made up a song and, uh, sang it and, uh, and it highlighted the points I was trying to make as the songs often do is that, and it was a song about going to the races, um, and, uh, where, where R stands for uh, rejection of reality and A stands for avoidance of reality and C stands for control and E stands for escape and uh, the S stands for suppression, as being a kind of a non-mindful stance, a stance of trying to control the universe through controlling your emotional responses, through blocking things, escaping from things, restricting things, controlling things that way, and, and that the alternative at the other end of the spectrum, and, and, and that addictions grow out of that, and, and other problem behaviors grow out of that, that suppressive approach to life. And at the other end of, that spe- of the spectrum is the more mindful stance, which includes uh, seeing things as they are. Uh, that's S, because I, I use the word soar to cap- capture that with, with two A's, spelling soar with two A's, it's probably from another culture. Um, so it's like seeing things as they are and the O being uh, openness or being open to what's there and A being acceptance or be to, to accept, and A being to allow, allow experiences to happen, and R being to relax into what is real. And so there, that's, I spent time on that and uh, I sang that. I didn't love that song. I have to tell you myself of the various songs I've done, but um, I got several people wrote emails loving the song. Somebody went and sang it with the substance group, abuse DBT group they do with the clients and they really liked it and talked about it. And so then I thought, all right, you never, you just never know when you put something out there, uh, what's going to happen with it. It's like, uh, when you're in little league baseball and the coach says, you know, just, uh, get, just get the ball in play. You don't know what'll happen. So I get these songs in play and the unfortunate thing for those who don't like the songs is that then it reinforces me to do another one. So I I have one later today uh, about what I'm talking about today about three states of mind in DBT. So today I want to talk about using mindfulness. Uh, I, last week, you might say, was a kind of a prelude to today. It was more about mindfulness, uh, thoughts about mindfulness, approaches to mindfulness, being non-mindful and trying to approach mindfulness. But, um, but it was, um, uh, it wasn't specifically about DBT. And what Marsha Linehan did with mindfulness to make it accessible to the world of people who are emotionally dysregulated and and to the world of people who don't practice meditation necessarily. Um, And really just, uh, and it's profoundly great, but she broke it down. So I want to move step by step into teaching you what you would learn if you were in a DBT skills group about mindfulness and what the skills actually are and what some of the concepts are. Uh, And I wanna take my time doing it because that's the distinguishing feature of this from a normal skills training group, you might say, is there's several distinguishing features, but one is that I wanna do it right. I wanna do it well. I don't wanna rush through details that are important. So I'm expecting today that I'll get uh, most of what I wanna talk about today, but then I have next week, I'm gonna continue on this topic and continue uh, more of the skills. So the topics today are gonna be the following mindfulness in dbt okay. what is mindfulness in dbt oops now i'm hearing someone now i ha- do have to learn yeah, how to mute, mute. your stomach if you do too many of those right you know. somebody somebody okay good Poor sweetie. I'm somebody, watching. somebody's somebody's talking and i'm hearing everything and it makes it a little hard um i'm figuring trying to figure out how to mute you guys and i'm not not being very successful at it um so let me just see I'm going to give one more try to what Mark was explaining to me, but it's not working on my. Yeah. Okay. I'll just ask you to, to be as quiet as you can. Um, so I want to talk about what is mindfulness in DBT? How does Linehan take it? And then I want to move right from that into what does she mean by the, the three states of mind and why that rather sort of uh, simplistic formula is actually really powerful and, and, and useful. And then I'm going to move from the states of mind into singing my states of mind song that I wrote earlier today. And then I'm going to uh, talk about the start to talk about the six mindfulness skills, uh, which are the six ways to help bring yourself closer to being in wise mind. Um, and I, w- I won't get through all six of those. In fact, I think I might just get to the first one and spend some time on Observe, which I could spend... Hours on, um, but I won't. <laughs> it's just that it's so amazing to really get into the details about observing. So, mindfulness in DBT, what do I want to tell you? First, uh, first, it's built on the idea that mindfulness is a universal capacity among human beings. This is not a special thing that mindful people do. This is something that everybody does from the time they're babies. And it's a, it's a human capacity, and it's there to be built upon or not. You don't have to build upon it, but, um, but we all have the capacity to notice reality in the present moment through our, our five senses and through the internal sensations that we have in our body, our perceptions in our body, and our thoughts within our head. And meditation, to distinguish it from mindfulness, is you might, it's sort of like a specialized application that requires a lot of devotion. Uh, it'll be like saying exercise. Everybody knows what exercise is. If you walk out of your apartment, you're doing exercise. But there are people who do a certain nautilus routine every day. That's a specialized form of exercise. Meditation is a similar, an analogously, is a similar thing with respect to mindfulness. You, it's just a way of really focusing on, on mindfulness and honing it in one direction or another, depending on the kind of meditation that you're doing. Um, not everyone can do meditation, not everyone wants to do meditation, we all know that. I mean, why can't some people do it? it? You know, Some people are too restless to do meditation. Some people are too emotionally dysregulated to do meditation. Some people, if they do meditation, because it's kind of an opening up practice, it brings them in contact with things they don't want to think about. Uh, they might be afraid if they think about their breath, that their breath will stop and they have a panic attack. They might, if they've had a history of traumas, think about their body and how it's been traumatized. So these are not benign procedures. And so some people do not want to do mindfulness because it actually sort of opens the window to things that one would prefer not to think about. And some it just requires too much stopping deliberate focus. So whatever it is, Marsha Linehan knew that from working with people and she decided to take the practice of mindfulness beginning with mindfulness based on a Buddhist kind of practice, in particular a Zen Buddhist practice, though there are other Buddhist practices, and there are contemplative practices in other spiritual traditions like Judaism and Christianity that have some similar focuses, and then there's non-religious forms of practicing mindfulness, but she decided to draw from that pool of practice and wisdom and try to come up with some bite-sized, user-friendly things people can do that are the, you might say, the building blocks of mindfulness. So that she came up with a a central organizing concept, which is called wise mind. And then she came up with six bite-sized things to do that that may be invisible in most cases, but they're very practical in helping you move towards wise mind. And they all put them all together and they kind of merge as uh, what mindfulness practice is. And even any one of them, if you understand them deeply, includes the other five. So they're actually very interrelated with each other. Um, so most people listening or watching this thing probably know this, but um, mindfulness is one set of skills in DBT out of four sets of skills. And it's usually the, the their, and they're called the core mindfulness skills because they're core to the rest of the skills. If you're learning, for instance, to regulate your emotions, you begin with becoming aware of your emotions, becoming aware of the sensations associated with your emotions, with the thoughts associated with emotions, with perceptions, with urges associated with emotions. It's all about becoming aware at first, and then it's all the things you can do. But if you skip the step of being aware, it's much harder to regulate emotions. If you're trying to regulate or deal more effectively with your relationships, it starts with being aware of your relationships and aware of what your goals are and aware of why you're doing what you're doing and aware of how you're operating and how the other person's operating and becoming relationally mindful, you might say. If you're trying to regulate urges, let's say you have a substance abuse problem, addictions, and really your life is undone every time you act on an urge and follow up a craving with action, then the first step in treatment is becoming aware, becoming mindful of those urges and where they are in your body and where they are in your mind and where they're coming from or where they're going and what your choices are. So so mindfulness skills are just another set of skills, you'd say, out of four sets of skills in DBT, but they are at the core and they are the preliminary prerequisites to the other skills when you do them. Um, In their own right, Mindfulness skills are powerful, even if you never learned any other skills. Uh, These are these are powerful. And within the world of DBT, if you know something a little more about it, you know, mindfulness, it's out of mindfulness practices and concepts that validation grows in the way that Linehan teaches it. And self-validation and self-compassion. These things all grow out of the soil of mindfulness. What else grows out of that soil? Exposure treatment. It's really becoming um, e- exposing yourself to painful memories and painful experiences in your mind and in your body uh, begins with exposing yourself to those because you're becoming aware of them. You're allowing yourself to become aware of them whereas you usually suppress them or usually avoid them. Um, it's also key a mindfulness skills to management of chronic pain in a behavioral framework. Um, so that there's lots of practice, there's, a, there's CBT treatments for pain and they pretty much all start or in, with or include uh, being mindfully aware of the nature of your pain at a level of detail that one usually skirts around because one doesn't want to stick with one's pain very much. But really the treatment is to go directly into the pain rather than skirt around it or to block it. So it's key to that and it's key to the treatment of anxiety is treated, key to the treatment of, uh, like I said, addictive urges, or let's say problems with eating and food is to become aware and become mindful of, of food, the taste of it, the texture of it, the, what it sets off in you, what your appetite is actually consists of. Um, it's becoming very, it's like moving into an area rather than moving away from an area. So all in all, it's very powerful stuff, this mindfulness. Now, another thing about them in DBT is they are considered acceptance skills because Linehan categorized the four modules of skills as being two acceptance modules and two change modules. And so mindfulness is an acceptance module. Distress tolerance, which includes radical acceptance, is an acceptance module. But frankly, as soon as you start thinking about talking about using or start to use mindfulness skills, you realize these are powerful change agents. As soon as you observe an emotion that usually would have gone away, you have changed yourself. Um, and so they, it's really hard to categorize them as acceptance skills. I think just for teaching purposes, I think Linehan grouped them in that way. Now look, um, what is it to be specifically mindful the way it's talked about in DBT? Because you can read, you know, dozens and hundreds of books and tapes and everything on mindfulness, and you get slightly different take on the same type of thing. But how does Linehan put it together? And you need to know this if you're really going to try to then build the DBT mindfulness skills on what you're doing. So it's really a four-part definition of what mindfulness is. Most people think of it as a three-part definition, but a careful reading of Linehan's work, and there's a fourth. Um, What's the first? And the first three are the same as what are enumerated by John Kabat-Zinn in mindfulness-based stress reduction. <clears throat> so what is it? Cause it's very practical. There's nothing airy fairy or weird about this. It's, it is first of all, focusing your attention on something, on something. What do I mean by something? It's focusing your attention on some sensation or combination of sensations, your five senses that go into your brain and your body. And, or the sensation of what's going on inside your body, of which there are several, you know, you have uh, the capacity to know proprioceptively what's happening in your various muscles and your organ systems and uh, vestibularly in terms of your balance and how this sort of comes from your inner ear canals and so on. So, and then there's being aware internally of your thoughts. So there's being aware of the outer world and the inner world. And you can focus on any one thing in that panoply of experience. You could focus on an activity. When you focus on the activity of breathing, you're likely to focus on sensations in the body that are associated with breathing in your belly, in your throat, in your nose, somewhere. But the idea is, and I think this is really important for you to grasp, even people who've been doing DBT for a while, This idea of focusing deliberately on something is very important. It's very different to hear something. It's very, I was walking through the, I was taking a walk today away from my office for an hour and I was hearing a bird song, really beautiful. And it's very different to hear a bird song versus to listen to a bird song. Those are two different verbs. And hearing is just, oh, there's a bird song. If somebody says, what did you hear while you were walking? I said, oh, I heard a bird sing. That does not mean that I was being, that I took it to the next level of mindfulness. It means that I actually have a working nervous system, thank God, even though I'm almost 70, I can still hear, at least with my hearing aids. So I heard the bird song. (laughs) And then, um, but then if I stop, which I did at one point, and there there was a bench when I was getting a little worn out, and I sat on the bench and I listened to a bird, And as I listen to it, I actually listen to it. And that's different to focus on it. And you hear the intervals between the different sounds in the bird and you hear the pitch of the bird. I'm not, I've never been a bird watcher, but if you really just start to listen to one bird for one minute, you realize, oh my God, this is a whole world. No wonder people devote their entire lives to being bird watchers. It's really interesting and always different. So focusing your attention means you actually are focusing it on something rather than everything else. And you're also focusing it one step further than just normal attention. It's getting into your brain through your acoustic nerve, if it's it's something you're listening to, or your optic nerve, if it's something you're looking at. But then you're dwelling on it a little bit. You're just adding a little bit to it. You know, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it was such a profound learning experience for me to go when I went to my first uh, mindfulness retreat uh, and it was Thich Nhat Hanh. And I, I thought, oh good, I'm going to have uh, an intimate experience with Thich Nhat Hanh. Turns out with 1100 other people, you know, having an intimate experience with Thich Nhat Hanh. the amazing thing is it was an intimate experience with Thich Nhat Hanh. I never, I was sort of deflated when I first got there. And I didn't know much about these things then. Um, but, You know, when when we were there and then I saw him go in a door in the in the dining hall. And when he opened the door and then he closed the door on his way out. I learned so much in that one moment. I think I did mention it in a recent podcast, but it's just you can learn this anywhere. If you see somebody who actually is mindful of what they're doing, that doesn't just mean, oh, I know where to put my hand on the door handle. Everybody knows that. Everybody can feel that, everybody can open the door, everybody can close the door. I'm generalizing, there's probably someone who can't do these things, but um, mostly. And, And it's different when you see somebody who actually is only, one and only, opening and closing the door. That is their focus of attention. That is a different experience, and I think that's where you get the bang for your buck with mindfulness and the focus part, which is just one of four elements is that you actually do it, you do it in a deliberate way. And you, Linehan uses that word several times when she's writing in her skills man, a new edition of her skills manual about being mindful. Is It is a deliberate focus of attention. She could have just said a focus of attention. This capacity to deliberate is part of, part of what it is, and it opens a new realm of experience to you that amazingly we fly through life without getting. I haven't listened to that many birds in this way. Even when I was a Boy Scout, when I was 11 years old and I got my bird-watching merit badge, (laughs) can't believe I got that. But my friend Roger and I, we went out and we were supposed to identify 50 birds. So we did it in one morning. It's like, really? And then we came and showed, we checked them all off. But I have to tell you, I don't think we watched or listened to one bird. I think we were just getting another merit badge. And I think a lot of us just get merit badges in life. Oh, yeah, I went out and watched the birds. Oh, I went camping. Oh, I went for a walk in the woods. I really enjoy nature. Do you really enjoy nature? Yes, you probably enjoy nature. But did you deliberately focus on a leaf, on a tree, on a pond, on an animal? Because that's a different realm of experience. It's like entering another realm. So what's the second feature? You focus on something. Second, you focus on something in this present moment and only this present moment. And that sounds, again, like a sort of a byline that's rather simple to take in. But, you know, it's not so simple to do. I was actually just trying to help somebody the other day who suffers from reminiscences of trauma that are really terrible. And, and, and so I was trying to help her be able to just do some mindfulness in the present moment of something that, would, that she could devote her attention to, to get a little relief from what she was suffering from. And the problem was that anything we could think of, if she brought her attention to something and there was something, I won't go into what it was. There was a particular thing that said, okay, why don't you attend to that? And the second she did, reminiscences came about painful things that happened in relation to something like that. It's sort of like immediately she left the present moment. And so what this means about being in the present moment, and it sometimes requires effort, It requires creating a firewall around your focus and a firewall around the present moment so that when you feel yourself being dragged back into the past or the past is invading you because it's associated with something in the present moment, which of course it is, or you're being dragged into the future because the present moment is getting you to aware or somehow you're becoming aware of something you're worried about. So you are no longer in the present moment. And it's just, it's just really valuable if you can focus on one thing deliberately and keep yourself in the present moment. That doesn't mean you never have these intrusions from the past or the future. You do, it's natural. That's how the mind works. The mind is not just a present moment mind. We have a mind that takes in all kinds of things and then imagines the future and reminiscences about the past. It's just out of, it's built in. So we're actually kind of going against the built in network of, of of neuronal practices in our brain, which always are associating, associating, and we're trying to say, no, stay here, stay here, present moment. And then you feel yourself being dragged in the future. And part of the practice is to say, oops, there I go. Let me bring myself back to this moment. Oh, listen to that bird song. Oh, look at that. Listen, look, look, notice that detail about my breath. Notice that other person's eyes that I'm talking to. You know, notice their facial expressions. Notice how how I feel sitting in this chair. Those things bring you back to the present moment. You know, I'm if I'm talking to you, I can be a teacher of a podcast like this in the present moment. But in, at any moment, I can start thinking, oh, my God, I wonder how this is going to sound. I just left the present moment. Or I could be thinking, oh, my God, I already said that. I just left the present moment. It's, it's a challenge to do it. And it, I'm telling you, it's worth doing it. And just because it's challenging doesn't mean don't do it, because it often requires many, many, many trials. You also have to find a, something to focus on that actually can hold your attention, which is different from person to person and thing to thing. What's the third quality? The third quality is to do this without judgment. But this is just like dragging yourself back from the past and the future. Your judgment naturally emanates from the focus on the present moment. I could be trying to just be a present moment teacher to you. But what can happen instantaneously and happens God knows how many times per hour for me, is judgments. Judgments come up about what did I just say? Oh, my God, did I really say that? Oh, my God, am I repeating myself? Oh, my God. Oh, I'm so glad I don't have to listen to myself. I mean, I, I can start to get just, it's like little things happen that take you out of yourself, take you out of this moment, take you out of reality, because judgments are not exact. They are technically a form of reality, but they take you away from sensory reality when you get into judgment. And it takes you somewhere else uh, that I won't get further into, because I want to do another podcast someday talking about the Buddhist concept of emptiness, because it, to me, it, it, it sort of, you fill the void around your sensory experience with a judgment. Um, and as soon as you do that, you're, you're, you're caught, you didn't mean to be caught and all of us do it, but you get caught and that that generates the next thing, which is sometimes a, a negative emotion or other thoughts or correcting yourself. So it's just really hard being a human being focused on one thing in the present moment without judgment. It's just a hard thing. I mean, that's a simple formula. People say it every day in DBT classes around the world, but I wonder how many people are stopping and thinking, actually, this is a big deal. This is like, you know, this is like, an eight, like a 70-year-old man doing a pole vault over 21 feet. It's like, no, this is really hard. I think that's a really high pole vault. I just am drawing from some memory in the past, and I never did pole vault. Um, so it's just that I read that an 85-year-old man set a new senior record a few weeks ago. 85-year-old um, woman, I think it was. Anyway, so here's these three qualities. What's the fourth one I'm talking about when you're trying to practice mindfulness? The fourth one is, is not only is it without judgment and in the present moment and with a focus of attention, the fourth quality is without attachment to this moment. Without attachment to this moment. And uh, that, that is that you're in this moment and you're, you're working hard, you might say, with mindfulness. Hopefully it's, it's meaningful, engaging, and even sometimes enjoyable. But it's it's effort. And there you are in the present moment. And as soon as you do that, there, we have a human tendency to get attached to whatever we've just gotten engaged with. It's like, oh, this moment. Now I'm being mindful. Oops, it's another moment now. I've got to do it again. I mean, it's like beginner's mind is the concept in Buddhism. And so... You know, when you when you you, you you get attached to something in the present moment and it might be to sue a good feeling. Oh, I was able to do that. Oh, that's a beautiful bird song. Oops, and a hippopotamus just ate the bird. You know, it's like <laughs> sorry that came to mind. I, it's not, not a very probable event. <laughs> but um but the idea is that this moment is unique and it'll be gone before you've said it, before you've thought it, you know and so how do you it's another part of what's effortful about focusing your attention in this present moment without judgment and without attachment to thinking that things have to stay the way they are this present moment and that if you get attached to it you're already attached to something that probably just went away i mean so it's this it's 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 getting into that deeper principle of impermanence and i think it's practices like this that led buddhist practitioners thousands of years ago to begin to posit impermanence as a central and critical condition of being a human being is that things constantly change. So, so I'm really trying to bring this across because my experience of teaching this in the past in skills groups where you have to rush through it and in being with other people who teach it, whether it's in workshops or groups or read about it, reading about it, you often get more into it, but, but there's a way in which this gets dumbed down And it's actually really challenging and it's actually really rewarding. If you really can slow down your day and slow down your mind and slow down your activity to actually give time and space for at least a few moments of your day and a few focuses of attention, it changes you in that moment and it sets off a change. And as I talked about last time, you could call that Pac-Man mindfulness because as soon as you have that a little you just gobble up one little moment with these four qualities you've now just generated what buddhist practitioners would call mindful energy now you have energy to spend just like in pac-man you get all these energy balls and now you're a more powerful pac-man um so now you're more you know so so if you can do this a few times a day it doesn't mean sitting for 30 minutes if you can do this a few times a day, you now ha- are starting to generate mindful energy which can then spill over into other things. So that's that's what I wanted to talk to you about, about what do I mean by mindfulness in a DBT context. Um, next big concept here that I wanna get into um, is Just make sure I've covered what I want to do. Yeah. So the three states of mind. Okay. This is another thing that gets taught as if everybody can just do this sort of like, because you were a fourth grader and you learned what a Venn diagram was. And so if you can put reasonable mind in one circle and you put emotional mind in another circle and then they overlap somewhere and that's wise mind, it's sort of like, Oh, good. Let's move on to the next topic. Sorry. It there's a lot to this concept. Uh, that's really interesting and it's just brilliant. Like other things that Marsha Linehan did, uh, just moves me to tears when I say that because uh, I've been attached to her for a very long time. And she's retiring and has has had some difficulties. And so, uh, but oh my God, having worked with her very closely for many years and written things with her and given workshops with her and learned from her over and over again, she just comes up with these things. you know. When people are geniuses, the things that they throw away are the things the rest of us spend the rest of our lives on. It's like, it's sort of like the things that fall like crumbs off their table are like, oh my God. I mean, she developed something. Some of you, if you've done DBT, may have seen a metaphor, the house of treatment in DBT. That's something she spilled one day in my setting in 1990 and we thought it was so cool and she just thought it was a nothing. And now it's circled around the world. I mean, people are doing this. I mean, so this is one of those things, the three states of mind, everybody who does DBT knows what the three states of mind are but let's talk a little more about them than usual because I think they're really useful. So um, she mapped out these three states of mind but why did she do that? What's the point of knowing three states of mind? I think the, the ultimate point is the value when you're a suffering individual or you're just someone who wants to enjoy life more, either one, the value of being able to be in what she ends up calling wise mind as the third state. The goal of this is wise mind. Just make no mistake about it. They're, they're all important. But also make no mistake about it, these are not correlated with any specific neurological structures, neurological pathways, or neurological networks. There are overlaps between some things that happen in the brain and reasonable mind or emotional mind or wise mind. And so it isn't like they're unrelated and who knows what that will turn out to look like with more and more research. But basically, these are ways to um, get yourself to wise mind. They're like a journey. You go through reasonable mind, you go into emotional mind, you go back to reasonable mind, and you start thinking, you know, what's wise mind? And we'll get into that in a minute, but let's take each each of these. Um, So what's reasonable? Reasonable mind is a state of mind. It's a state of mind in which the predominating characteristics are that we're logical, we're rational, we're intellectual, we focus on empirical facts of reality, um, it's kind of cool and dry compared to an emotional mind, you might say. Um, and, uh, you know, and people like to find, and, and it, it's really, uh, reasonable mind is not really invaded very much by love or hate or other passionate emotions. I mean, those things come in and you're not purely in, emo- in reasonable mind. I'm not sure you'd find many pure states of mind. But if it was a pure state of mind, it doesn't, it doesn't have much to do with emotions. And of course, as we all know, anyone who's learned about this before, obviously reasonable mind has a place in our lives to calculate, to plan, to evaluate, to correct things. If you're gonna build a bridge you know, from Brooklyn to Manhattan, you better have rational mind or reasonable mind going. You don't want to just bridge build an emotion mind because you're going to, the bridge is not going to meet each other in the middle. You know, you, you've got to be an engineer, engineer's mind, logical mind. So there's a place for it in lots of places. In balancing our own checkbooks, you'd rather be in reasonable mind than an emotion mind. So all of that's important. And reasonable mind can go too far and makes life rather boring. Not necessarily giving much motivation, since a lot of that comes from mo- emotions. There's not much coloration to life. Relationships are kind of devoid of actual an emotional partner. So there's problems with rash- reasonable mind. I keep slipping to rational just because I've found in my own experience of teaching reasonable mind in lots of workshops, the feedback that's come back to me is more often people can equate reasonable mind as if it's wise mind. Whereas rational mind is more clearly people think, oh, that's what we mean by rational mind. Even Linehan says, well, what's reasonable mind? Oh, it's when we're rational. Well, why not call it rational mind? I really don't know, but I'm trying to adhere to what Marcia has called it, it's reasonable mind. Um, What about emotional mind? Well, of course, emotions is when your current thinking, your current actions are driven by your current emotional state. Emotions are in a sense in the driver's seat. they could be any number of different uh kinds of emotions and uh and and some people are more emotion mind people than others more of the time um, so in an emotional state of mind what are what are we doing or what's it good for it's good for being motivated because we care about something, or we're trying to avoid something, or we're afraid of something, or we love something, or we're joyous about something. So it it moves it moves us. You know, it moved me a few minutes ago when I just teared up a little bit about thinking about my work with Marshall Linehan. Um, and, uh, and what's the problem with emotion mind? Well, emotion mind can get too unadulterated, too pure, too painful, where actually you just feel like you're just at the mercy of a bunch of gods on Mount Olympus and they're all emotions. There's the god of anger and there's the god of this and the god of that. And you're just blown around with emotions all the time. And and it's painful and it's hard to get out of it. And it also helps it, makes it harder to think straight. So there's a real problem with uh, emotion mind. And of course, some things in life make it worse. You can partly regulate emotion mind by getting good sleep and eating reasonably and nutritionally and getting some exercise on a regular basis and getting out into nature sometimes and, and whatever else it is that helps you equilibrate sort of yourself, maybe doing things that are a little bit less stressful, um, etc. So, um, When it comes to reasonable mind and emotion mind, where do we wanna be about these things? We wanna have access to both because they provide us different kinds of information. They provide us different kinds of wisdom. You know, you want to be the person who, if you build the Brooklyn Bridge, you want to be able to be in reasonable mind when you're putting it together. But if you want to make it one of the most beautiful bridges in the world, which it's been, somebody came in with something more than just reasonable mind there. Somebody came in with some sober passion and emotion about the art of it, you know, and so anything like that is a product. Any great thing is probably a product of emotion, mind, and reasonable mind if you're using this construct. And so you really want access to both, even if you're just making a decision about, gee, where am I going to go next week? You know, there's reasonable things to consider about where can I go next week? What can I afford to do next week? Uh, How do I get there next week? Do I have a vehicle? Do I need a vehicle? And then there's kind of like, do I actually want to go? And why do I want to go? And am I afraid of anything? So you really want to kind of have open access to both sides. Um, And how do you get from there to what is wise mind? I would would say wise mind is when you're at the place where you make wise decisions. But more than that, wise mind is at the place where you are living that mindful state, where you're allowing experience. You are open to experience. You're not suppressing and avoiding and escaping all the time. But you're actually there and you're taking in stuff and you're creative at that point. You're dialectical, which is a term we won't go into any more today, but, you know, you really are kind of in a play space uh, in wise mind where you can think pretty well and creatively and sometimes out of the box. And you can make decisions that might not be obvious why you made them, but you know in your wise mind that was a good decision. Why? Because it feels right Why? Because it endures tomorrow and the next day and the next day, even though it sort of was hard to get to it. And it makes you feel calm just to think that you are going to do this, even though you're scared to death of what the implications are. There's kind of like wise mind is a very important place to be from which to make good decisions and good reflections about your life and how you get there. You maybe get one foot in reasonable mind and one foot in emotion mind, and now you're standing in a balanced way with access to both bodies of experience. However, there's an X factor beyond that. That doesn't get you to wise mind any more than pointing at the moon gets you to the moon. It's like it, it it's a step in the right direction, these two things, but they aren't enough. And sometimes you might say, well, what do you? what is the X factor you have to add? I really think it's a mm, it's a wild goose chase to find the X factor. People often say, well, if you add intuition, because intuition seems to draw on some creative, implicit form of knowledge that isn't necessarily registered in emotion mind or reasonable mind. So it's a pretty good idea to think, well, what is my intuition? Or what does my spirit tell me? And this is a lot of where your background is and what, what your exposure has been to other things. What, what, when I feel balanced, what do I want? I mean, what, what does my soul want to do? What does my belly tell me I want to do? You know, when I feel grounded, what do I want to do? In other words, there's all these different sort of X factors that I add on to reasonable and emotion mind, and they're different for each person, different each circumstance. So, you know, it's hard to find uh, what those are necessarily, but it is a creative process. And Linehan Appreciates that, and when you read her manual about how do you get into wise mind, she resorts mostly to stories and metaphors and that, and I think anybody who's really appreciates that this is a an important but complicated place to get to uh would probably do that um, you know uh, i don't I don't have time to do a lot of examples right now for myself but uh or other people but there was one woman i worked with who um didn't know whether she should take her children out of school they were in elementary school uh and take and do her homeschooling and she was very caring about her children and very concerned about their education and very upset about the nature of their education at their school and she tried to intervene and it didn't get much better and so she was torn so she It was sort of like, how is she going to figure out what to do? Because her reasonable mind, which she did have access to, and she did listen, she listened to a lot of reasonable mind people at the school and other people that she knew who said, Oh, no, don't take them out of school. They won't have a social life. Oh, don't take them out of school. You can't teach them everything. There's a reason teachers are there. Don't take them out of school because You know, this is the way people learn how to be in our society. All these rational considerations, but there were the emotional considerations. I can't stand it that my children are having this experience in this school and we can't afford another school. And the best way we could do this, and I know I wouldn't be a perfect teacher and I know it'll be hard having the kids around and I know I'll have to figure out how to help them have a social life, but God damn it, I know I need to do this. No, but my rational mind and this person and this person say, no, no. And so she went back and forth and she eventually got to what she felt was wise mind. How did she know she was in wise mind? She came in and talked to me and said, you know what? I keep going back and forth about these things. I'm weighing them. They all make sense. I really have been torn what to do. But actually, I woke up this morning knowing what to do. I just know what to do. I said, what is that? I've got to take them out of school it's the only decision that I will feel okay about. And I've got to figure out how to do homeschooling. So I've already begun to research it. And there's actually associations of homeschooling people and there's social groups that get together and the schools will sometimes allow kids to be in activities. And so actually I'm starting to figure this out and I just know it's the right decision. And you knew from hearing her that it was the right decision as much as you knew from watching Thich Nhat Hanh open that door that he was entirely there. She was entirely there. And there's an overlap between that that kind of being completely present in the moment and knowing what's right for you somewhere in you in a way that you can't really describe in a way that anyone who studies your anatomy will ever find. It's, it's a mental experience. It's a soulful experience. So that's wise mind. And you, I think you have to get there by starting with reasonable mind, emotion mind. Sometimes you're just startled into wise mind, you know. You just started, you just know, I have to do this. So it isn't like you have to go through a laborious process every time. Um, All right, I'm gonna sing you my wise mind, reasonable mind, emotion mind song. So get ready, or you can go to the bathroom if you want to if you're listening right now, and if you don't like the song. (laughs) I say that, but actually most people seem to enjoy them once I do it. So here's the song. This is to the tune of a childhood song that we used to hear when I was growing up and would listen to Tex Ritter. was a country western, I guess, or whatever. It was cowboy music. Um, Wabash Cannonball. the song Wabash Cannonball. And, and so here's how the song goes. See if I can read my own writing because there's some crossouts and things. I was on my way to wisdom just the other day. I had the best intentions, but I couldn't find my way. I asked a nearby stranger for directions, and he said, Just find the intersection of your heart and of your head. Listen to the jingle, the rumble, and the roar. All of life's adversity can knock you to the floor. Just bring your full attention to this moment and you'll find the powerful combination by the name of wise mind. I started out in reasonable mind, it's really cool. My thoughts were very rational, I followed every rule. I dropped way down into my heart where my emotions reign. Wisdom would need equal parts, heart-feeling, and cool brain. So add a cup of logic, a cup of feelings, too. Add some intuition, and you have a wisdom stew. When life throws you a curveball, I hope that you can find the recipe for cooking up a big batch of wise mind. Listen to the jingle, the rumble, and the roar all of life's adversity can knock you to the floor just bring your full attention to this moment and you'll find the powerful combination by the name of wise mind there you go you know when when you sing something to a podcast and 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 the, and everybody's muted and there's no applause it's sort of like you think Did I actually sing a song? Or is it like a tree falling in the forest and nobody heard it? So um, (laughs) somebody just put, oh, somebody says, hooray. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Nicole. (laughs) Somebody sent a chat. Okay, Um, gosh, oh my God. It's all right, it's all right. I was gonna start talking about observe, describe So let me just say one more thing about um, the states of mind, because really, none of these things ever get full enough justice. I mean, it's when you practice these that you start to discriminate among the different things. I really, by now, I, I use reasonable, emotional, and wise mind more deliberately than I ever did before. When I have difficult things to decide, and sometimes it's about my kids, sometimes it's about other aspects of my life, friends. I mean, like, you know, I decided to have a party on Saturday night for myself because of my birthday. And um, we're not party giving types. We have rarely have more than two dogs and two people in the house. And so the idea of a birthday party was a little bit of a freak out. And I thought, yeah, but I thought, but when will I turn 70 again? Well, probably not for another 70 years. And that, even that math, there's something wrong with that. So you know, I'm not gonna turn 70 again. So I just thought, okay, I'll have a party. And I just decided I'm going all the way. I exposed myself to having a party and get into wise mind. And I had to figure out who do I invite? And sort of like, what's the circle? Is it this big or is it this big? It's every every damn thing about this party has required wise mind. I mean, I want in my emotion mind, I wanna get barbecue food. So there's a barbecue place that I decided to order food from. And then I thought, do I really want barbecue food? Because actually I really like Indian food best. And then, but what about other people? And then I thought, fuck other people. This is parties for me. And then I thought, no, it's not just for me. It's for everybody. So, oh my God, it's so hard to make these decisions. And should this person come? Because she knows four other people who are coming and she's going to find out that she's not invited. And then, then that, that'll be terrible. So, It just started to grow a little bit. And then what do you do at the party with a bunch of people who are either my kid's age, which is a lot younger, or old people like me? Like, what do you do? Do you play limbo? No, bad idea. Emotion mind, I think it'd be fun to say to everybody, we're playing limbo. I mean, and then people not be able to actually do it at all. Um, Or do we play pin the tail on the donkey? And you, then you realize, no, everybody my age is kind of like going around as if that's how you live life anyway. Like you're looking to pin the tail on the donkey and you never know if you're in the right place and stuff. All these things, you know. And so I get into humorous mind, which partly segues between reasonable emotional and intuitive mind. So anyway, I've been using wise mind. I didn't give you very good examples of what I came up with, but each one is a process and wise mind is a process. It isn't like, oh, now I've found the wise mind outcome. There's no way to judge the wise mind outcome, including for the woman that's, that's raising her children at homeschooling, because you don't know what the other outcomes would be. You know, you make wise mind decisions and you go with them and you just decide this is right for now and it might change tomorrow. So I'm in it now. Um, And next week, I'm going to start right into uh, talking about how these six skills um, manifest what I've been uh, talking about, uh, observe, describe, participate, and so on. So there's no questions from any of anybody who's listening. There aren't that many of you who are on right now. So most people who listen to these come out. Oh, Natalia has a question. So um, Natalia, I don't think you're muted. Oh, okay. Hi. Hi. So go ahead. I was just wondering if you could tell us how you can use mindfulness skills to get into wise mind. you oh, yeah. mentioned that you go into wise mind from emotion mind and reasonable mind. Yes, well, I think you, that's, uh, in terms of mapping territories, it's like, you know, you can get into the state of uh, Washington by going through Idaho and Oregon, but it doesn't tell you actually how you get from one of those places to the other. So, um, and, and maybe Montana too, I'm not sure. But it seems to me that um, there's a lot of ways. Let's just start with observe. You just find, yeah. You know, partly, the the thing that's interfering with getting into wise mind is you're not actually in contact with your with your present moment self, or with the present moment around you. You're you're going on automatic patterning from the past. You're going on conditioned thinking. You're going on, if you think A, now you naturally think B because everyone in your family did that, or you did, or you, or you were traumatized, so you never think C. And whatever it is, it's like the, the normal way of thinking doesn't necessarily lend itself to, dig, to going deeper, like you maybe know Linehan's metaphors, like going down to the bottom of a pond, floating down there like a leaf, or going down a spiral staircase in a well and trying to get to the all the way to the bottom where the water table is these are metaphors and so to get there requires actually opening your mind to something that just isn't open right now because and how do you open it you might open it by you just start for instance to observe the breath and observe the breath doesn't sound like wait a minute i'm trying to decide whether to have a, people come to this party or not how does that make a difference Well, it does profound things if you actually do those four qualities of mindfulness practice and do it with observe. So observe without judgment. Observe in this present moment, whether it's a bird song or a leaf or whether it's your breath or something closer to the thing you're thinking about. But you're observing something and something very um, unpredictable happens, which is while you're observing and your mind is completely immersed in this isn't letting yourself take in what's going on without judgment and in this moment, your mind coughs up the answer to the question. Your mind coughs it up. Now, another way Linehan tries to get it, maybe coughing up is like a bad metaphor. <laughs> maybe something more rises up. But, you know, like your your mind, another metaphor or another practice is to, as Marsha puts it in one of them, is that uh, you have a problem, like she, I was watching her on videotape once, work, work with a patient, where the patient felt very unlikable, nothing good about her. And Marcia said, I want you to, I want both of us to sit here with our eyes closed, and I want you and me to ask the question, what is likable about her? And I want you to ask wise mind, that question and let's imagine wise mind is out there in a canyon and there are echoes in the canyon and you're going to call out in your mind, what is likable about me? And you're going to wait for the answer and you're just going to pay attention. If you don't pay attention, you'll never get it. If you try to force it, you won't get it. If you say, what's a reasonable mind answer and emotion mind answer, you won't get it. You might get it if you just sit there and wait and it might not come today. It might not come tomorrow. It might come three weeks from now when you're listening to a piece of music, but you have primed your mind by being completely present in the moment when you primed it with a question. And now, three weeks later, I mean, what they did in that session, and then I see we're gonna have to stop. What they did in that session is they sat there for three or four minutes and the woman said she couldn't come up with anything. And Marcia said, well, I I came up with something. Do you wanna hear what it is? And uh, the woman said, yes. And she said, "Marcia said, um, what I came up with is she's incredibly kind. That that's what's good about her. That's what's like about her. She's incredibly kind. Um, and then the woman, you could tell the woman teared up. And she said, do you, do you hear me? Do you, do you hear that? Can you take in that you actually are incredibly kind? And it came from my wise mind, which is not an easy place to get and she said a lot of people have said I'm kind it's hard for me to take that in she said okay but we can start there so that would be that would be a creative metaphorical or imagery practice use of trying to be alert and observing maybe even describing sometimes with participate practices it'll come in your back door when you're doing a participate practice and you're in the flow and suddenly one of life's problems will like answer itself so I'll say more about it next week because the segue from these wise mind into the six skills was actually going to be the next topic. So you're, you're helping me make that link. So, so those of you who are, um, on live, thank you. I hope this was useful. I'd love any feedback, anytime, um, including by email or through, which you can get through my website if you don't have it otherwise. And also, um, you know, anybody else who's listening after that, which is what most people do, Uh, you know, let me know if you have questions about things or if you, uh, or if you, uh, want to make any comments. Okay. So that's it for today. Thanks for being there guys. And, uh, I'll see you when I'm 70. (laughs) Bye. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye.